There are a number of ways that you could summarize the Old Testament or summarize the history of Israel. Perhaps one of the simplest ways comes from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 15, verse 8. He's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah there, where he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus quotes that, he quotes it from Isaiah because it was as true of Israel in his day as it was in Isaiah's day. And it really is what characterized Israel for all of their history. This was a people who had a perpetual problem, and not just Israel, by the way, most of humanity. But Israel, particularly because of all the blessings that God had given to them, they had a perpetual problem problem of shallow repentance, a tendency to simply go through motions to try to give the appearance of being spiritual, to try to fool other people that there's some sort of sincerity or spiritual depth behind all of their religious activity, while on the inside they are full of dead bones. And so as Isaiah says, When they spread out their hands in prayer, God would hide His eyes from them. They could do all that they wanted religiously, but God was not impressed. And the reason He wasn't impressed is because He always knew their hearts. They might fool other people, but God knew their heart. He knew the lack of sincerity. He understood the lack of of genuine expression, the lack of repentance. It's not surprising then that under one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history and one of the greatest moments in all their history, with all kinds of of, uh, fanfare, when there was discovered after a long period of uh, absence in Israel's history, when there was discovered in the temple a copy of God's law which had disappeared for so long, There was a king, Josiah, Josiah, a righteous man, who under his watch, they discovered this book, and it spawned efforts at a nationwide reformation, nationwide revival. It's not surprising if after so many years and so many times when Israel promised some sort of sincerity and repentance, it's not surprising that once again, they would respond to even these events and uh, to this godly king with shallow repentance. They just figured that once again, for this season of time, they could fake it, go through motions, maybe coax God into showing them a few favors, a few acts of kindness, and then slide right back into their selfish and sinful lifestyles. But the Lord sent prophets such as Jeremiah to confront the people with this kind of shallow repentance, and his message was one of warning, that Israel had stirred God's anger after so many attempts to, to woo them and, and, and draw them. They had stirred the Lord's anger, and he was about to finally respond in the fiercest of ways with captivity to the Babylonian Empire. This was in 605 B.C. when Babylon first came against them and defeated them, and then once again in 597, and then finally 
They came back in 586 in which they besieged the city, breached its walls, completely and utterly destroying everything that was built in the city, bringing even the temple of Solomon down to the ground and utterly decimating the population. And so much of the book of Jeremiah, which we've been studying for the last couple of months, so much of this book really focuses on the events and how the Lord was responding to their guilt and to their superficial repentance. But as we've been seeing, the Lord gave a very special and precious message right at the heart of this book, right in the middle in chapters 30 and 31, a section that is often referred to as the book of comfort. And it ends with magnificent promises that, that are uh, um, commonly known as the, the, the new covenant, the promises of the new covenant. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. A new covenant which, by the way, would be extended beyond them even to include Gentiles like you and I. A promise in which God said He would forgive their sins once and for all, give them new hearts, cause them to obey and to walk in His statutes. And we've been taking a deep and long look, moving, you might say, well beyond the the beaten path of modern day Christianity, going into areas that people maybe are less familiar with, but this would have been the stomping ground of the early church. The church before the New Testament was written, the church which began just with the Old Testament scriptures and would preach from the Old Testament scriptures over and over again, this was one of their key passages. And we know that because it's one of the passages that's referenced and quoted in the New Testament more than any other. This was fundamental to the gospel, fundamental to the foundations of the early church and ought to be fundamental to us. And so we've been trying to work systematically through this section so that we can understand its message, a message that God will not settle for shallow repentance. He tells us, as he does a number of places in the Old Testament, that he had set his love on Israel corporately as a nation. He had made them his object of special affection. He was going to work among them in a special way, apart from every other nation on the face of the earth. And yet, that did not mean that he would simply overlook their sin, but he would deal with it severely and thoroughly because that's what it deserved. You remember back in chapter 30, verse 11, he makes this very plain. When he says there in that verse, he says, uh, uh, I, will, I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. This is so much of the message of these two chapters. The Lord was going to deal with Israel for all of their shallow, superficial uh, activity and religious behavior. He was going to deal with them thoroughly, severely, but they should never confuse that with the idea that he was giving up on them entirely, that God somehow was going to set them aside 
in his overall plan of salvation. That somehow he was going to begin to treat them the way he treated every other nation. They shouldn't take that message away from this discipline and this suffering that was coming their way. If you don't understand that fundamental point, then you would totally misunderstand all of the suffering that came on Israel. If you're a Christian and you don't understand that message, then you may find yourself misunderstanding sometimes the dilemma that you are in, sometimes the suffering and the pain that you are enduring, because it may very well be the disciplining hand of the Lord and you misunderstanding His love and His covenant are actually adding to your torment by heaping on yourself all kinds of doubts and suspicions about God's faithfulness that ought not to be there. You might conclude that the Lord has has abandoned you. Or you might conclude that if you just hardened your heart If you just go through a little more pain, then God will eventually leave you alone. But neither of those things would be true. When God determines that you are His own, when He sets His affection on you, when He declares that, then He's not going to do either one of those things. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to turn away from you. And He's not going to leave you alone. He was telling Israel that He will discipline them in just measure, but He would never, ever give up on them. But also, He wasn't going to settle for superficial change. That may have been what Israel wanted. With every form of discipline the Lord sent, they always demonstrated that they were only interested to do just enough to get through, just enough to get by, just enough maybe until things could turn around, but never were they willing to give up their love of themselves and their love of their sin. And so it became obvious in time, really over the course of a couple of hundred years with this nation, it became obvious that what they needed wasn't just another warning, another message of discipline. Certainly what they needed was not a superficial promise of relief. But they needed, what they ultimately needed, was a message of hope that went beyond all of that. They needed a hope that only God's love, which might afflict them outwardly, could also change them inwardly. Now this is really what Jeremiah 30 and 31 is all about. It's, it's a series of nine poems we've been looking at, and they all set this sort of contrast between God's judgment and then God's restoration. But as you move through the poems, they become increasingly more clear about how all of this is going to work out. And we've worked our way through them, as we said, over the last uh, uh, five or six times we were together, going all the way back to chapter 30, verse 1, when we talked about this poem Um, uh, describing their move from ruin to restoration. And then in verses 5 through 11, from panic to peace. Verses 12 through 17, from hurt to healing. And 18 through the end of that chapter, from rage to reconciliation. And then in chapter 31, beginning in verse 2, 
He talks about a distant relationship that would change to a dear relationship. Verses 7 through 14, a transformation from brokenness to blessing. And then finally, as we looked at last time, from hopelessness to hope in verses 15 through 22. That poem, as we looked at in depth last time, really begins with a picture of Rachel, one of Jacob's wives, one of the Old Testament uh, matriarchs, one of people from Genesis. It pictures her weeping, refusing to be comforted because it says her children are no more. But the Lord answers Rachel, not just with a promise of more children, not even just with a promise of restoration, but He answers her really with a promise of restored hope, which really gets to the heart of her grief. Not only was she grieving over the fact that she had lost her children, but it was the sign to Rachel that God Himself had abandoned her, just like Rachel in in the book of Genesis, who looked at her barrenness as a sign that God had, had forgotten her, had, had abandoned her. Here, Rachel is pictured as imagining that because she has now lost all of her children again, that God's forgotten her. But he tells her in verse 17, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children will come back to their own country. She couldn't imagine because of all of God's chastening, because of all this affliction, she couldn't allow herself to imagine that God had given up on her. There is hope. There is hope. Now, to communicate that, God introduces a second image which we want to deal with this morning, a second image in this seventh poem. Another image of grief, but in a very different sense. This is an image of Ephraim. Ephraim. Ephraim, by the way, was a name that was applied to the ten northern tribes of Israel. The twelve tribes of Israel were split, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And when you referred to the ten northern tribes, they were often referred to as just generally Israel versus Judah, or sometimes as Ephraim versus Judah. But Ephraim was also the name of the grandson of Rachel. He was the son of Joseph, Rachel's son. And not only that, he was the favored son. He was the younger brother of Manasseh. Joseph's two children were Manasseh and Ephraim. But although he was the younger child, God bestowed on him the blessings of the firstborn. All of this to communicate the special favor that was associated or attached to the name Ephraim. And so here in calling him Ephraim, he's kind of bringing up those same ideas of his favor, his love, his affection, which has been especially attached to Israel because of his promises to them. And this is what he says in verse 18. I heard Ephraim grieving. You've disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed. I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? 
For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So here he is talking about Ephraim, this favored son, but here pictured as a broken man. One who has been under the disciplining hand of the Lord and one who finally recognizes the foolishness of his own disorder and rebellious, disorderly and rebellious life. He finally recognizes what he really needs in life. He didn't need his sin. He didn't need his waywardness. He didn't need all the stuff that he craved after. He finally has reached the point of what he really needs in life which is a work of the Lord in his heart. And you see that sort of unfolded with three elements here, a prayer of repentance, a kind of proclamation of his remorse and the promise of the Lord in restoration. First of all, this prayer in verse 18, I heard Ephraim grieving, you've disciplined me and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I might be restored, for you are the Lord my God. You can draw your attention right there to the end of that. Bring me back, or as the NIV puts it, restore me and I will be restored. Restored me and I will return. All of this is sort of centered on a key word in Hebrew, the word shub, or shuv, as it's sometimes pronounced. It's basically a word for turning, literally changing in direction, and it's used throughout this passage from verse 18 down through verse 22. It's used in one form or another eight times. It becomes the the defining uh, characteristic of these verses, but many times it's being used literally of captives returning to the land of Israel on the same pathway they walked on. Uh, It's used of change in behavior, a life that turns around and submits to the Lord. But as this passage makes clear, before any of those outward actions take place, before any of that really happens, first of all, there has to be an internal turn, an internal change. This is what we call repentance. Repentance. People ask me sometimes, do you think the word repentance refers to more outward change or do you think it refers more to inward change? And my answer is always yes. It's both. You can't have one without the other. You're never really going to have genuine, sincere, outward change unless you have genuine, sincere, inward change. And if you have genuine, sincere, inward change, you're going to have outward change. And this is really what Jeremiah begins to focus on as he moves to the end of his poems. This is what most of the rest of Jeremiah 31 is all about. He's been talking about God's judgment and he's been talking about restoration But now he's beginning to take us beyond the surface of that, down into the heart of where all of that comes from, how God is going to bring that about, how he's going to bring change to their situation and their life. It is not going to be superficial. 
He is not going to allow them just to escape the consequences of their hardened heart and the consequences of their shallow and superficial rebellion or or shallow superficial repentance. He's not going to let them escape those consequences without doing a work in their heart. This is, of course, what Jesus tells Nicodemus, right? You cannot enter God's kingdom unless you are born again. Born from the inside. Or as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, that we as Christians have our souls purified by obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren. And so, he says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not from perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. It's such an interesting way that Peter puts that because he begins by telling us to purify our hearts by the Word of God. Why? Because, he says, you've already been purified by the Word of God. In other words, the very thing which gives you the capacity to love one another from a pure heart, to be able to obey the Word of God, the very thing which gives you the capacity to do that is the fact that you have already been born again by the Word of God. This is the message of the gospel. This is what the New Testament writers understood And they understood it from passages like Jeremiah 31. They understood it from what Ephraim is confessing here. He's basically confessing his inability to do what pleases God unless God does a work in his heart. He's saying to the Lord, if you will turn my heart then I will turn back to you. He says, bring me back though, so that I will be restored. Bring me back. Turn me. Literally in the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's saying, turn me so that I will turn. That's what it says. Turn me so that I will turn. Turn my heart. You be, God, it is your initiative which is my only hope. This is the words of an exasperated man. This is the words of someone who has gone through all of these efforts and all of these, all of these uh, sufferings and all this discipline. He's gone through all these prophets and all their preaching and he's gone through all of these re- uh, personal reform efforts and he finds himself really at the end. Just crying out to God, God, if I am going to turn, it's going to be because you turn me. Earlier, in Jeremiah 13, 22, Jeremiah said, If you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? Just looking at your circumstances, looking at your suffering, and you say, why have these things come upon me? It is for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted up and you suffer violence. In other words, the shame and the violence of your life. And then he asks this question. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? 
or the leopard his spots? Then also, can you do good who are accustomed to do evil? I'll scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert. This is your lot, the portion I've measured out to you, declares the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in lies. So for so many years, Israel Israel has suffered. They were miserable. They found themselves going through life, just dragging through life in the misery of their situation and asking themselves this question, why is this happening to me? Why me? Why me? Why me? All the while not realizing that the very answer to their question was themselves. That's why. It's because you who are accustomed to selfishness, who are accustomed to rebellion and hardness of heart, it's because you, you cannot change yourself. You have something like a genetic trait, like the color of your skin, like the spots on a leopard. You have something that defines you. It defines who you are and you cannot change it about yourself. You are accustomed to rebellion. Now in Jeremiah 31, he pictures Israel as a sinful young man who finally acknowledges his need to turn away from sin. He says, Israel says, I was like an untrained calf. I was wild. I was easily led astray. I was untamed. I was always bucking against my master, always resisting, always sort of pulling away. But now he's come to see the shame and the disgrace of how he acted. He acknowledges the disciplining hand of the Lord. He says, you disciplined me and I was disciplined. Meaning, meaning basically your disciplining hand was effective. You determined to discipline me. You were thorough and you accomplished it. And now here he is reduced to this point of brokenness. Praying to the Lord, return or turn me I should say. And I will return. He's saying to the Lord, look, I don't, I don't just need your work of discipline on the outside. I need a work on the inside. I need you to give me a new heart. I need you to give me a new inner man. Israel had always resisted this. They had always resisted this kind of Humility. If you would have asked them, if you would have confronted them, their first response would have been to defend themselves, to defend their sincerity, to defend their faith, to defend their behavior, to call themselves righteous. That would have been their response. But now, here he pictures Ephraim as saying, I am helpless without you. I can't even change myself. And then after that prayer of repentance, he kind of gives this proclamation of remorse. Verse 19, after I had turned away, I relented. After I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed. I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Here he's kind of describing what was taking place in his heart. And this is really 
probably described in reverse order. He begins with the repentance and then he digs down deeper and deeper into the attitudes that ultimately produce that. First of all, just the repentance. He says, after I turned, I relented. Nehem is the word. It, it means regret or sorrow. There was an inner grief that caused him to stop in his tracks that brought him to the place of realization that the pathway he was on was leading not to life but to death. Not to the promises of peace and, and a glorious future but to the promises of or, or, or to the certainty of destruction, self-destruction. And he reached this point of Nehem. He reached this point of relenting or of of regret or of sorrow. That repentance really came, he says, because he was secondly instructed. I was instructed, so I struck my thigh. That's an image that was used in ancient literature to talk about intense emotion. You could use it for grief, you could use it for anger, you could use it for all kinds of things, but when a writer wanted to describe a super sharp, intense emotion, they would use that phrase of slapping your thigh. Almost maybe like we picture someone throwing things today, here's a person just violently slapping themselves because they, they've been struck with such intensity. He's describing what he realized suddenly. And thirdly, he had this outburst of emotion because he found himself ashamed and confounded there in verse 19. Previously, he was going his own way and it was in pride and it was in, it was in sort of defiance. He would not admit his fault. His, his life was defined by an attempt to to defend himself, but now, now he reached a point where there was nothing but shame and a confounded perspective. He wasn't the man with the answers anymore. He was a man ready to finally humble himself and be broken. And all of this, his prayer of repentance, his proclamation of remorse then prompts the Lord's promise of mercy. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? Rhetorical questions. The answer is absolutely. Absolutely. For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I'll surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. But he's saying, look, don't mistake my blows of discipline. Don't misinterpret all of my chastening. Don't look at your suffering and, and conclude from all of that that I have forsaken my love for you. Don't do that. As often as I speak against you, or as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. My heart yearns, he says. In other words, the Lord was in pain over this. He was grieved. 
Like any parent who has to discipline their child, it is grievous to them. And here the Lord pictures Himself like this father having to discipline His child. And He says, even as I was doing it, my heart was, was breaking. You see, Israel didn't want the relationship that they needed to have with God, but God wanted the relationship. He never stopped desiring the kind of intimacy with Israel to which he had originally called them. Never stopped desiring that. Even as he, even, even as he struck them, even after all their rebellion, even after all of their foolishness, even after everything they had done, all of the disgrace they brought on themselves, even after all of that, he still yearns. And he would not relent until they reached this point. He wouldn't let up his disciplining hand until they reached this point. He would reduce them down to nothing. As we said last week, he would chop Israel down to a stump if he had to. He took away their family He turned them into a barren woman again. He took them to the point of utter destruction, completely uprooting them, but never, ever abandoning his desire to rebuild them, which is what he says in verse 21. He tells them, set up road markers for yourself, make yourself guideposts, consider well your highway. He pictures them going off into captivity, going off into really what are the consequences of all their rebellion. And he's telling them, look, as you're going away and suffering all these things, go ahead and put guideposts for yourself so you know how to find your way back. This was a, a, an assurance that the Lord was going to do this. And, and once again, he's just, this, this verse is filled with the same Hebrew word, shub, to turn, to return. And he's using these concrete images of exiles who would one day return to the physical land of Israel. And he pictures them using the custom of caravans who would go through the desert. There weren't always well-established roads. And even if you did establish them, the sands would blow over them. And so what caravans would do as they marched through the desert is they would set up these tall posts, these guideposts and these signs so that they could find their way back to their homeland. And he's making this point that he's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back. But it's going to be predicated on this internal change first. That's why he adds there in verse 22, this final plea, How long will you waver, O faithless Israel? Even with this promise of bringing Israel back to the land, he still recognizes that they have wavering hearts. They still are not ready to repent. And the implication is that they need to deal with the issues of their heart. And then he adds there at verse 22 this proverb, For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth. A woman encircles a man. Listen, very close. I have no idea what that means. 
The only comfort I have is no one else does either. <laughs> there are a lot of theories about that particular part of the verse. Uh, people think that it has some reference to all the early church fathers thought it had some reference to the virgin birth. Uh, they just couldn't explain how, you know, what in the world it meant about the virgin birth. A lot of people think it refers to Israel finally embracing the Lord, putting her arms around the Lord. Or some people think that it means that women are going to make marriage proposals to men for whatever reason. And there are any any number of other, dozen other interpretations of that verse. But the key word, the word encircle, is often used throughout the Old Testament to talk about protection. It's used that way several places. And so whatever this really means, it probably has the idea of somehow women protecting men. In fact, it uses the word for man, geber, which is not the typical word adam or or, um, other words for man. It uses a word that particularly refers to uh, the manliness of man, or we might say a strong man. And so it says really what's going to happen here is a woman is going to encircle the strong men. So you have this woman or this image of a woman protecting a man probably has some idea about maybe peace and safety that the Lord intends for Israel even to the point where the women of the land could adequately protect them if they had to. Even the strong men will be no longer needed. But regardless of whatever that particular verse or particular section means, the message is clear. The Lord wants to restore Israel. Before he can do that, though, there has to be a work that takes place in their hearts. And that really brings us to and introduces the next poem in our sequence, which is begins in verse 23, and it talks about the change from the old covenant to the new covenant. From the old covenant to the new covenant. And you just take note of the first few verses and see how the Lord extends this theme of return and restoration. And you can see it, first of all, this introductory formula which has introduced all nine poems. You go all the way back to chapter 30, and you see the same thing over and over again. Thus says the Lord... Or here he expands it probably because uh, he's accentuating here this, this uh, penultimate uh, poem, sort of reaching the, the pinnacle of the whole message. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And the focus shifts back from Ephraim and back from Samaria and back from the northern kingdom and it shifts back to the southern kingdom and to Judah and to Jerusalem and it begins with a promise about the restoration of their cities. Verse 23, once more they will use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. In other words, this this blessing that used to be pronounced over Jerusalem because this was the place God dwelt. This was the holy place. It'll once again be declared to be the holy hill. It'll once once again be recognized to be the place where God dwells. Not only that, all the cities of Judah. Verse 24, Judah and all its cities 
shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. In other words, even the rural people outside the cities. He says, For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. Everyone's going to experience a kind of restoration. Everyone's going to experience a kind of abundance. No longer languishing in their misery. Then Jeremiah says in verse 26, this was like a pleasant dream to him. He says, I, at this I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. It was like a pleasant dream. Apparently the Lord gave him these, these revelations, these, these uh, prophecies in the form of dreams. And he says at this point he awoke from the dream and it was the most wonderful peaceful, pleasant spirit, uh, uh, meaning. We might say it was like a dream come true for Jeremiah. I mean, he had experienced God's salvation. He had come to know the Lord personally. He knew what forgiveness was in his own life and his own heart. He knew peace with God in that sense. But he says this was something totally different. This went beyond anything he could imagine. So far beyond that, he could hardly believe that the Lord would do this for Jerusalem. And yet this is exactly what God said he would do. He goes on in verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, which is sort of a statement of time as Jeremiah will go on to make clear in verse 31 as the New Testament even makes clear that this, this, this is a time reference to the days of the Messiah, the days of His return. But he says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and of beast. That, by the way, is a reference to judgment that has already come. If you have your Bibles, you can look with me back over at chapter 7, verse 20. The great, sometimes referred to as the great temple sermon of Jeremiah when he was announcing this slaughter that was coming to Israel. And he says in Jeremiah 7.20, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast. Upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground, I will burn it and not be quenched. You come over to verse, uh, chapter 21. In verse 5, once again, you, you read this. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and with strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast. And they will die a great pestilence. So you come to Jeremiah 31 and you're reading and you think, well, what in, what in the world does this mean? that he will sow Israel and Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. Well, Israel would have understood exactly what it meant. They would have understood exactly what it meant because they had seen and understood the thoroughness of God's judgment. They can now understand the thoroughness of his restoration. In fact, Jeremiah quotes in verse 10, excuse me, in, in, in uh, verse uh, 27 there and 28 
he actually quotes from his own call. If you go back and read Jeremiah 1.10, in fact, I'll read it for you. Jeremiah 1.10 is the very beginning of the book, the very beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, and God gives him this call. He says there, get all the way back. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to plant or to build and to plant. Jeremiah perhaps didn't fully understand what that meant when he was first called, but he would come to understand He was the one who was to proclaim not only the destruction of Jerusalem, but its rebuilding. And so back over in Jeremiah 31, we read this, that the Lord would uproot. He says, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, to destroy and bring harm. In other words, he's bringing up a comparison in their minds now. In the same way, or just as, I was making sure, watching over. That's why, by the way, from Jeremiah 1.11, he says that he would watch over his word to be sure to perform it. In other words, I'm going to carefully make sure the word is performed exactly as I said it's going to be performed. And so here he says... In the same way as I watched over my word or watched over them to pluck them up and to break them down and to overthrow and to destroy them and even to bring them harm. In the same way as I watched over them, I am going to watch over to build and to plant. In other words, the Lord is bringing to their minds and to our minds this very direct connection this correspondence, if you will. Someone might say, well, that's just a bunch of metaphorical, figurative, symbolic language for something. Well, you'd have a hard time convincing Israel that the words destroy, pluck up, and tear down are metaphorical. They lived it. It was real to them. And the Lord's telling them, just as real as was my destruction, so also will be my rebuilding. I will plant and I will rebuild. But it's going to be contingent. In those days, he says in verse 29, they'll no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's kind of a a proverb, apparently, that Israel used to complain about their situation. Sour grapes would have been the source for vinegar, and in those days, certainly before even modern-day oral hygiene, when people consumed these grapes or large amounts of vinegar, their teeth would begin to ache because of the high levels of acidity within the vinegar. And the people use this proverb basically saying, look, we're suffering for the sin of other people. 
I mean, my situation is bad, but it's because of fill in the blank. In this situation, they were basically saying it was their parents. The, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. The fathers, in other words, have sinned and we're the ones who are suffering for it. This is classic, classic blame shifting. You want to know why my situation is so bad? It's because of them. Lamentations. Jeremiah basically quotes the people. Lamentations 5, 7. Our fathers sinned and are no more and we bear their iniquities. You want to know why I'm in the situation I'm in? It's because of my parents. Because of my upbringing. Because of my homeland. Because of my neighborhood. Because of whatever. That's why I'm in the situation I'm in. Ezekiel actually confronts this very same attitude. Ezekiel 18, verse 2. He says, What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. But he tells them in verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. This is apparently, whether it was in Jeremiah's day or Ezekiel's day, as people were suffering the misery of the consequences of their own choices, the consequences of their own sin, they were still unwilling to admit They were still unwilling to confess. You know, maybe they read some of those verses in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, 7, which speaks about God when He says, He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Maybe they read that and misunderstood that. That... That verse is just simply saying that there are repercussions for your choices. There are repercussions for your children, for your children's children. The actions that you take today can have ripple effects down into their life, negatively affecting them. You're you're hurting people far, far beyond yourself by the selfish choices you're making. Maybe they read those verses and... And, and misunderstood because this is very different. It's very different to recognize that there are social implications in your family for your sinful choices. But that's far different from saying that the situation that you find yourself in today, you have no responsibility for It's far different from saying you have no real guilt. That all your problems are the result of your parents or the result of your circumstances or the result of your spouse or the result of whatever. Jeremiah is simply saying when the Lord works, before He brings about all this rebuilding, before He brings about all this restoration, before He does all that, 
you won't find that kind of attitude in Israel anymore. Instead, verse 30, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. People are finally going to recognize individual responsibility. You suffer for your own sins. That's the place you have to get to. You know, there's only one person who ever lived who suffered for sins that were not his own. Only one person. That was Jesus Christ. He had no sin. He couldn't suffer for his own sin because he never sinned. And so when he suffered on the cross, when he bled and died, it wasn't for something he did. It was for something we did, something you did, if you place your trust in him. It's because you couldn't suffer enough to cover the cost of your own sins. There's no way you could ever do enough suffering. That's what hell is all about. Eternal punishment is the just recompense for a life of sinful rebellion against God. But, but when Jesus suffered, He took all of God's wrath that you deserved. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, He removes that suffering. That's a beautiful message of the new covenant. That's what Jeremiah gets to really in verses 31 and following when he begins to talk about a new work the Lord's going to do, a day that's going to come when he says, I'll put my law in their hearts and I will remember their sin no more. He's going to forgive sin. He's going to do a change. He's going to answer the prayer of Ephraim. Lord, change my heart so that I can change. Turn my heart so that I can turn. He's going to answer that prayer. And He's going to make people a new creation. That's our invitation to you this morning. If you're here and, and you hear these words of remorse and you hear these words of complaint and you hear in them your own lips, the Lord has brought you here so that you can repent, so that you can hear the truth, so that you can be informed so that you can respond in faith so that you can let the Lord work in your heart if you want to ask the Lord to do that if you want to ask the Lord to save you and to make you a new creation we want to share with you from the scripture exactly how that works we'd love to meet with you we have a visitor reception after the service here it's right down this hallway to the right I'll be there we have some other elders who are there we'd love to have a chance to talk to you to meet with you, to share with you a little bit more about this glorious gospel that comes from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It comes from God. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful for this word, so thankful for your work in our heart that brought us to the place of brokenness and brought us to the place of repentance. We were grieved ashamed we were confounded and it was all because of our own sin Lord but you have mercy and you're full of grace even 
even while we suffered the consequences of our sin, you yearned for us. Thank you, Lord, for that yearning. Thank you for that unending promise of restoration. I pray that you grant us faith to continue to believe in you, to continue to turn away from our foolishness, to continue to find your restoring power and your renewal. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.